This is Radio Influence. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of City Ringside. My name is David Penzer, and we are happy, as always, that you are here to listen to this thing we call a podcast. Really excited about my guest this week. Going to get to him right away. Just want to remind you, by the way, if you want to follow us on social media, at David Penzer on Twitter or at Penzer Ringside. And uh, if you are listening to this at a platform where you could leave reviews, we'd love to hear what you think about sitting ringside. And I think we have a fun guest this week. As a matter of fact, I know we do. Whether you know him as Daryl Van Horn, the sinister minister, James Vandenberg, or the father of Abyss, please welcome my friend and one of the most interesting people in professional wrestling, the one and only Jim Mitchell. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not sure how to introduce my guest this week. Should I call him the Sinister Minister? Should I introduce him as James Vandenberg, Father James Mitchell, or Daryl Van Horn, going back a little way there? Uh, I'll call him Jim Mitchell. That's his real name. And uh, uh, welcome to City Ringside, Jim. How are you? I'm doing great. Just don't call me late for the orgy. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go, right off the start. That's the Jim Mitchell that I know and love. There you go. Pop it a wheelie. Pop it a wheelie. So it will tickle your prostate to know (laughs) that appropriately enough setting I'm in right now is in the middle of a torrential downpour. Uh, Sky is black and lightning is hitting the ground within, I'd say, within a half mile of me. I'm looking at it. So uh, the the setting is is appropriate. So absolutely. 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 just great to talk to you, man. You're you're always a blast to uh, catch up with, as as people can see right off the bat. I uh, just wanted to talk a little bit about your career in the, the pro wrestling business, and and I even want to talk about what you do now because I think that's uh it's amazing. But um, when I when I started doing some research uh for this interview, I didn't realize. It, it, correct me, I'm not sure if this is right because you know the internet, you know, is right about half of the time. Did you actually train and started to wrestle, or were you always a manager? Uh, No, I never formally trained to be a wrestler uh, as far as, like, under the tutelage of a school. Um, I had tried to get into wrestling starting around 1986, and, you know, there was no way to break in. But I was living in Columbia, South Carolina at the time, and Moolah, uh, the fabulous Moolah had a wrestling school about four miles away from where I live, which I stumbled upon by accident in the yellow pages, went over there, tried to get in. And back then the cost for wrestling school was like $3,000, which is a lot of money now, but if you do the uh, inflation, I don't know what the hell $3,000 would be the equivalent of now, but there was no way I could do it. So I had just started, uh, sending really bad, uh, homemade basement tapes, I guess you would call it, uh, of me standing in the kitchen and cutting promos and to uh, promoters, if I could find one, which was the other thing. I used to have to go to the uh, library and look on microfilm. You oh know, my God. Somehow. Imagine that. I've done I, that I, too. Yeah, I, I forget even how you would uh, reference wrestling or what you went through to find it. <laughs> but I would find these tapes of microfilm and just sit there, and I'd eventually find the address for Don Owen in Portland and stuff like that. And and then I, I would uh, send all these tapes out or call cold call people, and basically they'd say, "Okay, you're a manager. Who'd you work for?" Well, nobody. Click. You know, and that was the end of it. And, so, so uh, you're you're the one who didn't lie, because uh, almost right. almost every almost every interview we do there's a point in which somebody said Doug, who'd you work for and then they lie their ass off so you're the one who told well, the truth yes and this will explain the what you read about me getting trained because i did eventually lie but I'll oh. tell you that <laughs> so after having the door shut in my face repeatedly um and i had met a couple of job guys at a bar that i used to sing at and they told me look they get 
thousands of VHS tapes a week. You know, they're, they're how the hell are they going to know who you are? So you've got to know somebody. Right. And I knew the job guys couldn't get me a, you know, they weren't going to take a recommendation from a job guy. One of the jobber group. So I took a commercially, uh, commercially produced porn tape. Like this was back when, if you bought a VHS tape, it's like 1989, maybe 88, 89. Those things cost like 80 or 90 bucks, right? So I, I guess I one, never bought a. I never. This Jew ass ain't buying no 89 dollar porn tape. I don't care how good it is. But. <laughs> I was a more desperate Jew than you. I guess. <laughs> so, um, anyway, it was called White Bun Busters, and it was just the <laughs> filthiest thing you could ever imagine. But. By these guys, their gimmick was the Dark Brothers, whatever. But they were universally like known as Gonzo porn people, right? So I bought this tape, then I uh, chewed up a piece of paper and stuck it like where the recording tab would be that is that's always empty in a commercial VHS tape, right? What you know, like a pre whatever a movie or something. I stuck it in there and I waited about ten minutes into the movie, knowing that it was so disgusting. If they didn't cut it off, they were going to keep watching it. And as they're in the middle of the porno or the beginning 10 minutes or so, suddenly I popped on screen as the Reverend Jimmy Ray snake handler, pastor of the Church of Wrestling Unification and owner of Love Brokers Enterprises, the world's (laughs) largest outcall modeling service or escort service, and the... uh, the uh, producers of Love Brokers Video Enterprises that brought you nasty old codgers, the Yuletide erotic classic, Yes Vagina, There is a Santa Claus. So uh, it's like this 20-minute long, filthy promo because I don't know what the hell I'm doing, you know? And I'm just going on and on with all this shit. But the person I sent it to who called me back eventually was Gene Anderson from uh, Jim Crockett Promotions. (laughs) And... Poor Gene. I, I love Gene. He was such a great guy. Yeah, I was I was at work at my uh, I was working at a record store at the time when such things existed in the mall. And I get a phone call and this girl says, Gene Anderson's on the phone for you, and I'm not even making the connection. And sure enough, Jimmy, Gene Anderson, Jim Crockett. I almost fainted. <laughs> and you know, the guy said, Look, you're a good talker. You'd make a good preacher or a porn star, but you don't know anything about wrestling, you know? Sure. And he gave me a few numbers, uh, one of which was Avalanche Buzz Tyler, who got the tape and said who was running an indie in uh, Sumter, South Carolina. He told me the same thing. Basically, we can't use you because you're so green. We don't, you know, the guys, basically, uh, I think Gene told me the guys will fuck you up. You know, you've got to learn how to take your bumps. But through between the two of them, um, I got some phone numbers and started fishing, starting with the world's worst shitty outlaw shows, which they now call indie indie or independent shows. But back then they were called outlaw shows. Right. And uh, slowly just kind of kissed my ass and worked my way up. So that that's how I broke in. And but you uh, were just to be clear, you're a wrestler though, not a manager. Right. I was, oh, yeah. What I was going to say, how the, the lie started was once Gene Anderson had talked to me and he told me, uh, call uh, Nelson Royal and, uh, and, and Grizzly Smith or some other local TV that was running around in North Carolina. I think it was called Atlantic Coast Wrestling. He said, call them and tell them I said I sent you. There you so go. that turned into the lie of Gene Anderson trained me. <laughs> Gene Anderson didn't train me for shit. I mean, I actually, I went to his camp a couple of times with some jabronis that I eventually got in with. Right. And, uh, you know, Gene Anderson, if you know anything about him, his training camps where he would just beat the living shit out of people and blow them up before they ever got in the ring. And essentially wrestling tryouts were just money grabs. They really weren't there to find talent. So, uh, my friends went in there and paid Gene money and whoever, I think he was working with Nelson Royal at the time too, I forget exactly. Monroe, North Carolina, I believe. But uh, so I'm going up to Gene and I'm going, hey, can I, can I get in there and do this and that? And Gene said, kid, you got the gift of gab. Don't wait. Don't. No, you're not. You don't have to do this. You know, 
Right. So anyhow, that's how there's a thing online that says I was trained by Gene Anderson, which is funny that a lie that I don't believe I ever said in public once the internet took off. Right. That was just locker room talk from the outlaw days. It somehow made it to uh, Wikipedia or wherever that posted. So, go on. Uh, I didn't see that you were trained by Gene Anderson in my research, but uh, I was surprised oh, okay. that you. I was surprised that you were a wrestler. Uh, uh, so, uh, how did you get in? I thought that uh, I thought for sure the whole porn tape thing was going to come down to that. You got a call from Jim Cornette, and that's how you got into Smoky Mountain Wrestling, just because I know Jim Cornette. But uh, Gene Anderson was uh, was was totally uh, not expected, but but just as entertaining. So, how did you eventually work yeah. your way into uh, to to Smoky Mountain? Um, I had, there's a guy named Greg Price, who some of your listeners may know as a guy who runs the Mid Atlantic Wrestling. Uh, fan fest sure. or was running it for several years up until recently. He was one of two or three promoters in the area I lived in, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, that circuit for the indie guys who ran good independent shows where you'd have, you know, Ivan Koloff and Wahoo or, you know, whoever just got off TV on top. Right. So, um, and I had always tried to get on his shows and, and, you know, just couldn't get in there. Now, I don't remember if I sent him the porn tape or not, but he, he called, sent me a fax. Uh, he was running South Atlantic Pro Wrestling, which was one of the last territories. It was something I think Robert Fuller and John Ringley and Paul Jones had started in the Mid-Atlantic, uh, that, the same area that Crockett had run. Yeah, that's and uh, cor- correct me if I'm wrong. That's actually the promotion where... Ken Shamrock and Jerry Sags of the Nasty Boys had their conference, physical confrontation. That, yeah, 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 that yeah. was that was the promotion, and uh, Ken Shamrock was known as Vince Torelli. Tor- Vince That's Torelli. also where uh, Rob Van Dam, I think, showed up for the first time. Yes, sir. But uh, I did. He called me up to do a TV for him, and uh, I think we taped a month worth of TV or something like that, and then they went out of business. But the good <laughs> thing was that I had a reel, as they say in Hollywood, right? And uh, I sent, then I had to toil on the Indies for a little while after they shut down, but Cornette got a hold of it. Cornette called me, uh, this probably a year or two later, um, and then brought me to Smoky Mountain, where I became, well, I was always called Daryl Van Horn at that time, but uh, he brought me in and I managed Prince Karras, the 3,000-year-old mummy, uh, which was kind of, you know, it, it was what it was, but uh, it gave me a great platform to get out on TV and just say the most preposterous bullshit <laughs> you could ever imagine. You know, because sure. Cornette had told me, look, the mummy gimmick is already dead. His uh, money backer, Rick Rubin, the big record producer, right. record label owner, whatever, he, wa- he was the backer and he wanted a mummy in his promotion. So, uh, you know, you know, Cornette's not going to manage a mummy. You know, he's manager the tag champions or whatever. So, uh, uh, I guess I was the guy who seemed crazy enough to uh, walk on television and say manage a mummy. So, uh, yeah, I, I went to, went there, and that's where I first started getting recognized. And again, there really was no internet to speak of. This is like 1993, 94 or so, and. Um, so when, when all was said and done, I think I had about a nine-month or eight-month run there and uh, got uh, booted from there. But in the interim, um, I met Chris Canyon, who uh, through the Wrestling Observer pen pal section or something like oh, that. Oh, jeez. Wow. Yeah, he happened to live like two miles away from me, and I didn't know it. And uh, I met him, and I pulled out my... Uh, my uh, South Atlantic pro wrestling reel, you know, this guy had, a, he had a great job. He's making a lot of money as a physical therapist and they paid for all of his uh, housing, a car allowance, everything. So he had nothing but money to spend and, and time to waste. So I kind of took him under my wing and took him to Moolah's for a little while. And I got him in on Smoky Mountain. And as one thing led to another, um, he once he uh, left, uh, he got a job working way underneath as a jobber in uh, WCW. And when the time came for the whole Blood Runs Cold thing with Glacier and Mortis and Wrath and Ernest Miller, um, I wound up getting the call to uh, 
to be James Vandenberg, the manager of the collection of oddities. So uh, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, remember the, the people you meet on your way up and you'll meet them on the way down, et cetera, et cetera. I scratched his back and scratched mine. So that's how I got to work the turn. Sure. Kind of ironic, though, that uh, t- just to go back a little bit, that the, your entry into Smoky Mountain Wrestling was because, uh, and don't take this the wrong way, but was it, the way I see it is Jim Cornette was too embarrassed to manage the guy he probably the character he probably hated the most, but his money backer insisted on. So he hired another manager to come in underneath, and uh, so 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 the fact that Jim Cornette is so particular about uh, the professional wrestling, which continues to this day really gave you a break. Hey, I read something online about that uh, your tenor with Smoky Mountain came to an end over a drunk dialing incident. Could that be right? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, you may remember this from back in the day. Uh, there was a thing where the dirt sheet guys were beating up on Cornette for various things. And, you know, Jimmy being Jimmy, uh, there was an incident or something where he beat up uh, a former employee's car with a baseball bat. You know, there was all this kind of shit going on. And suddenly, suddenly he was getting the equivalent of hashtag me too, you know, in the sheets. (laughs) And uh, so, and and I think they were starting to have some money woes. But anyhow, uh, Paul Heyman, of all people, called me because he was on my stupid list of phone numbers I'd acquired over a couple of years. And we'd talk every once in a while. He called me and he said, hey, is it true Smoky Mountain's going out of business and Cornette's wife left him? So I went, I don't know. And then I proceeded to get shit face drunk and talk to all my friends about it. And then I decided to call a couple of his office people. The first office person, uh, Casey O'Connor, who's actually the guy whose uh, car he smashed up with a baseball bat or something, but um, told me, basically, mind your own business. And then as I continued to stress out, because this was far as i knew the the only in i had to pro wrestling sure. then i called his cornet's personal assistant who then must have passed it on to him and he called me back about an hour later hey daryl van horn jim cornet i was like hey how you doing and you know how he you know the promos he cuts on vince russo yep he cut one on me yep <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the end of my smoky mountain uh tenure have, have you guys talked since then? I'm assuming you have and then cleared the air. Oh, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. He, he didn't even remember it. He think, he thought it was about something else. Right. But, because uh, I mean, God, that's what, almost 25 years ago or something like that. Um, yeah, we've talked about it and laughed about it. And, I, you know, he came to work for TNA, which I had not seen him in years. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're buddies. Always good. I just saw him uh, a couple weeks ago at a wrestling convention down here in Orlando. But, yeah, Cornette's... Uh, buddy of mine and great inspiration and uh, yeah and yeah he's he's been a guest on this podcast and we're still waiting for him to come back and do part two so jimmy Cornette, if you happen to be listening uh anytime give me a call but uh he's a ton of fun got some buzz last week when i mentioned the great deal that my bookie is offering to city ringside listeners yes i said it and I'm going to say it again. They will match your deposit dollar for dollar up to $1,000. They've been in business for years, have great reviews online, and their mobile site is easy to use. I would only recommend a service to my listeners that's been good to me, and I love my bookie. They have great in-game live betting, the most rewarding player perks in the business. And for you fantasy guys out there like me and fantasy gals, you can even bet the over-under on how many fantasy points a player will score each game. Never been able to do that before, but you could do it on my bookie. The over, under, and fantasy points for particular players, that, to me, sounds like a blast. That's why I'm urging you to make your way to my bookie. You win, they pay. And as I said, join now and my bookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar up to a grand. Use promo code RINGSIDE to activate the offer. Visit MyBookie online today. That is M-Y-B-O-O-K-I-E. Don't forget to use the promo code RINGSIDE when creating your account to claim the bonus. You play, you win, you get paid, and get up to $1,000 matched on your first deposit dollar for dollar with the promo code RINGSIDE. Visit MyBookie now. You went into WCW, the blood runs cold thing, and um, 
it it seemed like it didn't last. Was there? I guess my question is: there was a long. Was there ever a longer term storyline uh, for your character and that that feud in WCW? Did it get cut short, or was that just the the storyline? And then they were always planning on moving the uh, canyon against Raven and and Glacier going some in another direction. Well, you you were there for a few years before me, I believe. Um, as when I, the day that Bischoff hired me, because the NWO had just popped like six months earlier, right? You know, that was like late '96, right? And I like in the summer of '96, the NWO started, so everything completely changed, you know. Right. But they had been running at about the same time that happened. Six months of commercials these mysterious commercials for blood runs cold for right. glacier. If, if you remember, but when I went into CNN tower to sign my contract with Bischoff, he said, uh, this angle is already dead. Oh. I'm going to sign you up for two years. Don't buy a house. Don't get married. This thing is already dead because we're moving in a different direction. So which was a hell of a way to sign your first contract. But I have to say this, um, you know, we were what middle of the card, right? Middle of the card, top middle of the card, whatever. But we had great production values, you know. Right. We had all that gimmickry and the lights and the, the crazy characters. So you know, it was a hell of a spot, you know. And this is when we were kicking Vince's ass every Monday night for whatever a year and a half, and uh, Vince McMahon's ass in the ratings. So it was a great featured spot. But there was no, I mean, by the time. They got the Blood Runs Cold thing on TV and running, actually, with the wrestlers. Uh, they basically, it was a complete afterthought, you know? Um, I mean, I know I jumped in and tried to, because they had no rhyme or reason for why people were fighting over Glacier's helmet. They didn't know what a mortise or a wrath was, nor did they care. So I tried to bring it a little bit more down to reality by because I don't know if they were supposed to be aliens from another planet. I don't know. Nobody ever said. So I just talked about them being like blood sport, you know, uh, Malaysian pit fighters and from Taipei and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I remember a funny thing. Bobby Heenan, who was really cool. Anybody of course, a shit will tell you Bobby Heenan was great. He did a great job because they did, you know, I did like one or two promos, but basically we weren't important. They didn't let us talk. And when our matches aired, like pretty much anyone underneath, they would just talk about the NWO angle because that's what was selling tickets. But Heenan would always jump in and put my weirdo shit over. So he got my character over, actually like a manager would get a wrestler over. Right. And he, I mean, to this day, people still come up to me and say, did you really try to buy the elephant fans bones from Michael Jackson and stuff like that? So anyhow, the first night or, or whatever, a pay-per-view or two in, Bobby walked up to me and said, hey, what do you want me to say about you or describe these guys? Probably the first night. I said, well, yeah, because this was when UFC had just started. They'd done one or two pay-per-views. And, you know, it, it wasn't like it is now. It was just a free-for-all tough man contest. They actually banned. They actually, getting ba yeah, go ahead. It, they, they were getting banned in states. You know, it was like the, the big hashtag before hashtags. And they were calling it human cockfighting. And I said, well, Bobby, why don't you say that um, we're human cockfighters? And Bobby says, Vandenberg, I can't say that. You're going to think there's two guys standing there with their fucking dicks out having a sword fight. <laughs> but, uh, God bless him. you know, it, it, it was a great experience because, you know, I, I had to unlearn all of the shit that I had learned on the indies, you know which is wrong. It's just like anybody who comes off the independent circuit now and goes to WWE relearns, right? you know? And I was actually thrown on TV before, but I, you know, the first few months I was there, I did a lot of stupid stuff on screen that I eventually kind of moved out of, but it was a great learning experience. And it was great to be there on the number one rated cable TV in America at the time. You know, it was, it was, uh, it, it, you know, it wasn't, uh, a, wasn't working on top but it's uh it, it was i mean hell you couldn't pick a better time to be in any kind of position in the wrestling business than the monday night wars i mean i mean think about it the guys who drove the truck and put the ring up were making good money yeah. you know and, yeah. and they were pulling racks 
Yeah. You know, so we, we, we were all rock stars, were we not? I mean, I don't know. How, how long you've been married now, Dave? Uh, 26 years. Uh, okay. Well, then that doesn't apply to you. Never mind. No, it doesn't apply to me. But, uh, it does not. But, 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 but there was plenty of pulling for those who wanted to pull. That's for sure. Uh, and you were always in, yes. on, and you were always in on the action. Uh, you're not married. Yes. Are you? When everyone else was doing GHB and ecstasy or whatever they were doing, I liked my beer and my, uh, women of questionable virtue. That was my <laughs> vice. It, it's, it's funny, you know, going back to what you said, it, it's, it, you know, there's a lot of discussion these days about WCW, what went wrong. You know, there's podcast, this podcast, there's other podcasts. Eric has a podcast. There's a new book out. So it's ironic to hear that Eric had known that the, the, the angle was dead from before he even aired it. Uh, I'm assuming that's because they were going to go into a uh, comic book cartoon kind of hero direction. And then when the NWO, which was way more realistic, got hot, uh, they, they realized that they couldn't do both, I'm assuming. Would that be a fair statement? Uh, yeah. And, and here's the thing. Now, at the time, we were frustrated. Like, you know, I mean, who, who in the wrestling business isn't frustrated because they think they should have a bigger push, right? But we were frustrated and uh, griping and grumbling and bitching and, and thinking that people, you know, that Kevin Sullivan and people like that actually gave two seconds of their day thinking about us, you know, conspiratorial right. thinking, which I now know is all bullshit. And rip and thing. But um, yeah, his, the funny, the irony is that his vision was to uh, have these over the top video game kind of characters. Right. right. And the funny, and then he, he put the ax on it. But the funny thing is that video games then took off huge and now you actually have all these uh, goofy indie promotions that have characters like that, sure. you know, um, that are that are doing pretty well, you know, whether that's your vision of wrestling or not. But he, he was a bit of a he, he saw the future. He, he implemented implemented it about twenty years too soon, sure. you know, but um, or, or implemented it and then killed it before before it came to, <laughs> you know came to maturity little bit of an innovator. But yeah, there was supposed to be, there was supposed to be all, you know, uh, merchandising. The whole thing was about merchandising the kid. Right. So it was supposed to be a big deal, you know? And then they're like, hey, it's probably a lot easier to sell a black and white t-shirt as NWO on it than, uh, than, than producing, uh, you know, pit fighting play sets or something. I don't know. You're you're a fun guy, and the interview's been fun. But uh, I I want to get serious for a second because um I, I don't think I don't know that anybody knew Chris Canyon uh, as well as you did. And and when uh the history when 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 what happened happened in his life uh, first uh, uh, coming out uh, as being gay, and then uh, which nobody I don't you know you could say more than I, but I I don't know of one person that all that in WCW that would have given a crap. Uh, but uh, and and uh, and then you know him unfortunately battling mental illness. Um, I guess after that all happened, it came out that you know you were sort of his the, the guy who talked him down, so to speak, uh, when he would be in those uh, those situations. So uh, tell me a little bit about that because he was such a great guy, such a great talent. Uh, I mean, he gave so many guys their starts uh, uh, in in WCW and in the business. So. Uh, so I just think it'd be uh, it, it, we need to take a minute just to pay a little tribute to him and talk about him in a in a serious way, if you don't sure. mind. Sure. Um, well, again, I mean, for the most part, I owe everything to him for you know opening the door for me. I mean, we were we were good buddies. Period. Before right. he was in WCW, and uh, right before he moved away from Columbia, South Carolina, he announced to me that he was gay. Well, now, look, in South Carolina, um, which was way behind the times, the only homosexuals I'd ever, you know, interacted with were kind of over-the-top, effeminate, you know, caricatures. Right. So, I, it, yeah, and you know how Canyon was. He's from Sunnyside, Queens. <laughs> Fuck that motherfucker. Up to gas. So, and, and I remember he'd have girls at his house all the time in South Carolina, and they would say, I think your friend is gay. No, he's not gay, but that was because he was the only guy not getting laid when he was having all these parties. And they, they all wanted him because he was the big muscle guy, you right. know? 
Um, so he told me he was gay. I completely forgot it. He would call me while he was starting to uh, make his trek. You know, he went through Memphis. He went to ECW before he got to Atlanta. And he would call me and I'd give him updates on what was going on with the rats. And he'd always say, you stupid motherfucker, I'm a homo, right? <laughs> so we get to WCW and, and he let me, uh, you know, crash on his couch for the first month or whatever until I got a couple checks in. But that was when I started noticing that despite all of his being a uh, lady bountiful, no pun intended, but a very generous guy, you right. know? Um, I started noticing that he had, I thought I called them anger issues. Right. Um, he would later go on to reveal to me that the reason he would go insane and beat the shit out of me when no one was around oh, was because, um, I was the only person who really knew him and knew his secret identity. I was the only person he could be comfortable with. So, um, while I, while I was on the road with him, he also used me for what they call a beard in the gay community, if, if that, which means uh, a cover for you to be straight. But he would use me to uh, basically one of my jobs was to be minister of propaganda. And we'd come back to catering after a night out and I'd done whatever I did. And I would just include Canyon in the lie. Right. right. I'd fill him in on what happened. And he would interject with, yeah, and Vandenberg was so nasty, whatever, you know. But he, uh, and one of the things, so he, when he went to New York, that's when everything kind of switched for him because he wasn't in a comfortable environment. And that's when I started really seeing that he was starting to, you know, be, deal with them. The, the mental illness was starting to get on top of right. And it got to a point around 2006 or so where he started calling me constantly and threatening suicide. And, you know, the first Five or six times, it was, oh, my God, you know, and you're trying to call his brother and, you know, everything. And please don't do this. Everybody loves you. And then he got to where he would call me and tell me that he was doing things like that as a work, you know, to create controversy. But he, he had this idea. One thing I, I, he said in his last years of his life. Um, and I think he was getting desperate looking for a cash grab. I don't mean to disparage my dear, dear friend, but he started saying that people were discriminating against him for being gay. And I told him, I said, I don't think that's the case. You know, I don't think anybody gives a shit. Um, but he, he started, he got it in his head and, you know, he started dealing with schizophrenia and bipolar issues. And, whatnot. and uh, the last time, you know, he'd, he'd drop off the face of the earth for a while. Right. And then he would call me. And sometimes, like one day he would call me and it would be like old Canyon, totally mellow. And a few nights later, he'd call me and it would sound like he was on cocaine, which he wasn't because he did drugs to my nature, but he was having a manic episode. Right. So um, the last time I saw him, I was doing an indie show for Mikey Whitbrack. And it just broke my heart. I mean, I hate to kill my character here. But um, <laughs> he, we, we had a, you know, he came up, he was, he came up with some weird, weird idea of how to do Mortis on the Indies that completely flopped. And I, I won't bore you with the specifics, but everybody in the locker room knew that he was just on a manic binge out of his mind. And I talked to him after the show, and he started telling me, you know, he wanted to kill himself again, and I was going through the same pitch that I'd give him every time he would hang up on me. And he said, look, you're, you're being selfish. You know, you're too worried about how you're going to feel if I die. How about how the fuck I feel? Right. You know, how about, you know, and I mean, and I, I cried the whole way home on the flight that next day. But he, I talked to him one or two more times after that. It was, it, I don't think it was more than a few months. And then I got a call from, uh, from his brother. No, no, his, his friend passed, who you may or may not have met. Uh, basically, his brother from another mother kind of guy. Um, but, uh, and I got the news, and, and it was horrifying because he, even when he finally came out as being gay, it was like 10 years too late. There, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it wasn't a big deal. And nobody cared. And I, I think he thought that that was going to make him a big deal. 
And he started just doing all, you know, making an ass out of himself. Again, no disrespect to my dearly departed friend. But he, you know, he was out of his mind and approaching Stephanie and Hunter and Vince with crazy ideas and showing up at shows unannounced, making a nuisance of himself. And uh, it was just really sad. And, and the thing was, I, I just, I don't think that he, you know, I can't be inside of him. But I don't think he realized that nobody gave a shit. No, and that, that's you know? the thing. We, you know, he built, I remember he built up, we did a pay-per-view in Orlando with Jimmy Hart. And he built up this big announcement, you know, this huge announcement. And, you know, when, when, when he finally said he was gay, it was like, people were like let down they were like that's it we don't care nobody cares i mean i'm not, not going to say nobody cares but very few people care and these days in in, in the, the the world we live in now uh really very 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 few people care about that uh you know my kids have what well, you know i'm sorry your kids of what they 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 went to high school and you know uh, you know gay couples go to prom and you know hey they they go with the the, the other guys or the I mean, it's not a big deal that, you know, if I were to ask my, tell my kids such and such is gay, they'd be like, so what? I mean, it absolutely means nothing. Yeah. And you know, the only reason he told me he was gay was because when he was moving, his cousins from New York had come down to help him move or something. And, uh, or, or maybe it happened when he got to New York, maybe he'd already gotten back. to New York, But, um, his cousins were helping him move and some gay porno fell out. And he said, that's, Errol Van Horns, he's a sick motherfucker. And he, that's, when, that's exactly why he called me. He said, uh, he said look, I'm uh, bisexual. And I said, you mean bisexual like Elton John and Boy George said they were bisexual because it's not cool to be gay or because you're gay? And he goes, the second one. But, so he had me call his cousin to tell his cousin that I had accidentally left some materials at his house. You know what I mean? He gave me a whole script on how to try to swerve his cousins into thinking that I was gay and that he was covering for me, you know, and I didn't care. I mean, so, you know, I did it and, you know, I, I, he probably told people I was gay back and forth, whatever over the years, I don't know, but everything was a deflection, but it was really kind of sad, you know, thinking back on it, that his big thing was he always wanted a boyfriend, but he didn't like sissies or effeminate men and he could never find a guy that was just a guy, you know, a, a macho New York guy. But, you know, I, I miss him horribly. I mean, I think his talent uh, is greatly missed by the wrestling world. Um, and, and he would have been a great hand in these, these days, like the WWE Performance Center, as a teacher and whatnot. Just a, he was a great guy. I was going to say, I was going to say, before you said that, in my mind, I was thinking, the exact same thing that if he would have just been comfortable with who he was, he'd have been the lead man, uh, trainer at the WWE Performance Center right now. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, and, and then like he wrote this uh, his biography that came out after he was dead, and he had sent a copy of it to me or something like a year or two before it ever came out, and I told him this is a pack of lies, and he said that he didn't care. He wasn't writing for a wrestling audience. He actually had it in his mind, Dave, that he was writing it for the Oprah Winfrey book club audience, and he thought that his life would be turned into a movie or a sitcom. So a lot of the things in that book are complete horseshit. Like he was basically describing me as like his crazy Kramer friend from Seinfeld type of thing. And there are complete discussions in there that are they're nonsense, but they were because he thought, okay, this guy plays this role. This is this nutty, wacky friend. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he had Seinfeld or something in his head. And I wish somebody would come along and write an actual book that really reflects, you know, what he was going through. Because to me, that's more potent than the nonsense that, that he left as sort of his unofficial uh, uh, autobiographical movie script treatment, you know that nobody ever bought. But uh, yeah, there's, there's a hell of a story on him. I mean, the things he went through, and after he had died, that's when all that, you know, the uh, cultural awareness and it gets better movement and all that stuff came out. He could have really done a lot in yep. that kind of environment, you yep. know? So, yep. 
Well, everybody's the Dolly Downer portion. Yeah, everybody's writing a book. Uh, I wanted to hit on it because I know that you guys were very tight, and uh, and he was a great guy. And I just wish he could have been comfortable within his own skin. But there's a lot of people writing books right now because it's very easy. Uh, it's not like the old days where you have to print a minimum of thirty thousand books. Uh, you know, uh, uh-huh. so so let's hope. I think that's a great idea. So I'm I'm going to try to find somebody, reach out to some people who might want to. Uh, you know, do a book on on uh, on Chris and his life, and and do it justice. I think that would be uh, uh, a fitting end to uh, to what was a kind of a crazy life. If you're tired of looking at your cell phone bill, paying for a lot of data that you do not use, I got the best mobile you've never heard of to tell you about. Ting Mobile. Ting does mobile service differently. You only pay for what you use. There are no startup fees, no contracts, no plans. Perfect. If you spend most of your time around Wi-Fi, why pay for data you don't use? The average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month, as we've discussed before. Nationwide LTE coverage means you'll have great network coverage from coast to coast, and almost any phone will work with Ting. From that ancient Motorola Razor to the latest Galaxy S9 or iPhone X. They have reliable customer service. You get to talk to an actual human when calling in, there are no machines. I love that. Get $25 off your bill or $25 off a new phone in the Ting shop at ringside.ting.com. That's ringside.ting.com. Speaking of crazy, uh, you ended up going to ECW as the Sinister Minister. How is how is that compared to WCW? Uh it was the Wild West, as portrayed in the movies. <laughs> or, you know, did you ever see the movie The Wolf of Wall Street? I have. Um, okay, the opening scene in The Wolf of Wall Street. I put the DVD in, and I said, oh, my God. <laughs> the opening scene, if you know what I'm talking about, right. with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, I said, oh, shit, that's ECW. <laughs> that's uh, it." Was, it was a bunch of outlaws and misfits, and and that's actually um, it, it was just uh, that's the first time I started feeling like a somebody kind of right. you know instead of I'm faking it that's going to fall apart any minute now. Um, a great atmosphere, and you know, Paulie was the world's best motivator. Um, it was it was a and I was there like the last year and a half. I think they were open. Right. But it was, God, I mean, that was actually the funnest time in terms of just, I can't wait to get up and go to work. You know? That's awesome. Um, it was just an amazing atmosphere. And, uh, and, and that, you know, I, I, I planted the seeds to do what I did later down the road, you know, by becoming more of a devilish character. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, a very special time and a place to be in the wrestling business. You know? So you ended up um, at TNA and I know you had a brief run early and then you came back uh, with Abyss. Uh, would I be wrong to say that was the perfect matchup you and Abyss? Yes, that was, uh, you know, I'd had a, I'd come in earlier with uh, Slash and Brian Lee, right. disciples of the new church, whatever. And we had a great run with America's Most Wanted with good stuff. But when they hooked me up with Abyss, that really was, that was one of those, uh, it really was. It was a peanut butter and jelly, Reese's Cup, chocolate, and peanut butter, whatever. Sure. Um, Keith, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger type of thing. And and we had a good run. Wait, who's Keith um, Richards? Who's Keith R- I don't I mean to interrupt you, but which one is Keith Richards and which one is Mick Jagger? I got to know. Um... I was probably Jagger. I figured. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, we, we had a great run and, you know, uh, it was, it was basically the best run I ever had, if, you know, of sustained main event or right under the main, you know, we were always in the, either the top spot or right under right. the top, you know, um, and, and TNA at the time before everything screwed up, uh, due to things that we don't have time to go into now, um, you know, they were never going to be number one, but they could be a solid number two, you know, and I they know. had a great fan base, you know, you were working there when I was yeah, there, right? Yeah, yeah, I, right, I, yeah. 
I actually was on a podcast recently, and somebody asked me about that, and I said I di- I never really got the feeling that they were going to be able to take on the WWE machine, but I thought that they you know could be doing what they were doing successfully for a long time. It's like Bill Barons used to say. I forget which one in the seventies or whatever when they uh, there was Avis and Hertz rental cars. Right. I forget which one was number one. I think it was Hertz was number one. So you could never be Hertz, but you could be a really good Avis rental sure. car. You know, a solid alternative. So yeah, so you had all kinds of twists and turns, soap opera stuff with uh with you and Abyss, and it ended with the uh, kind of a reveal that had been kind of uh, planted out there for a while that uh, he was your son, and then nothing happened after that. Uh, so I'm curious. Um, I'm curious what 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 what, what happened there because. That uh, you'd think that reveal would have been the start of something, and it really was kind of the end. Did you know it was the end? Was well, that the plan? Well, I knew when they started having me come out on TV before they split us up. I remember the first time Vince Russo came up to me and said, "You're going to walk down the aisle with him, grabbing him by the hair." And I'm thinking, "Look, I'm me, and this guy's a monster. Right? What in the hell am I yanking this guy around by his hair and treating him like a bitch? You know, like a pimp treating a whore." You know, right. and I knew the writing was on the wall that something was going on, but and there were aspects of it I didn't like. There was all this facts. I've always believed that anything, any story that's told in wrestling should be seen on screen, not the ghost in the machine type of finished right. bad movies. So that it's revealed that something nobody saw that I was shot in the back or whatever, and they they flip flop that a couple times. But I went with it, and my thing was okay. I'm actually on. You know, like working in the main, I'm working with Sting, I'm working with Christian, I'm working with Kurt Angle, I'm getting all this promo time. I can either bitch and whine about it, or I can just dig my heels in and, and do my best with it. Right. So that's what I did. And, and as crazy as that story got, some of the best promos I ever did were when I was taking this convoluted story and making sense out of it. So uh, when they finally revealed that I was his father and he had shot me in the back. Um, they brought in Ricky Banderas as Judas Macias. And Ricky right. Banderas was kind of like the Hulk Hogan of Mexico or Stone Cold of Mexico. And he, he now works as Mil Muertes or uh, Lucha Underground. But he was a big star in Mexico. He came in, but I, I think like he got started and he hurt his back and then he was off TV for a while. As soon as they started it, then they kind of put me with like Gold Dust or Seven or what? What did they call him? Not Gold Dust. Seven, I think. Um, seven. Not Seven. No, that's what they called him in WCW. Um, uh, silver or something. I can't remember. But it was Gold Dust. Black Rain. That's what Black Rain. And yeah, so they they kind of treaded water for a little while until Ricky came back, and then they offered him a contract. And uh, whatever, I guess they didn't get together on the contract. And once he was, and, and then he left. But then the money shot of all this is, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I'm pretty much arguably doing the best damn promos on the TV show. Why am I not on TV? I get fired. Um, or let, you know, Terry Taylor lets me go. And like two, three, four years, five years later, six years later, um, I was doing a podcast with Vince Russo. And I, I was going to do like the, the old 60 minutes uh, pop a question on your gimmick. Right. <laughs> on Mike Wallace. Hey, by the way, what's this? <laughs> and I asked him why I got fired, thinking that he would go, uh, uh, uh. And he said, no, Dixie wanted you gone because you were getting booed and people were booing you and you were getting real heat. And because people were booing and hissing at you, that must mean they don't like you and you're not a good person. And you shouldn't be working for her company. <laughs> I'm like, what in the hell is that? You, you know, it was too many, too many years later to do anything about it. But I would think some of the subsequent uh, creative decisions that you saw that came after my release would kind of indicate that. And, and this is about the time she started pulling more strings creatively. But, you know, so, you know, had I known that, you know, I would have come to them and said, okay, you want me to change something or whatever? Frankly, I would have talked to her and said, Dixie, you realize it's my job to get booed? It's my job for people to give me the finger? It's my job for people to be angry, which most people aren't doing now because they're cutting clips in the ring and all kind of being generic. 
You know, I, I'm an actual old school heel, but I never got the chance to do it. That's how the ball bounces. I have to say, although I, I go ahead, go ahead. I, I did have the pleasure of uh, getting a little closure on the TNA run. Last year I came back, uh, Last year for Slammiversary. In the history of doing this podcast, that we've done it for over a year, I don't know that I've ever been speechless. Uh, what you just told me <laughs> about why you were fired, if Russo's being honest, uh, and, you know, sometimes, I don't know, you know, you never know with Vince Russo, but if he's being honest, that just left me speechless. It's a good thing you continue with the story, because my, well, my jaw was on the floor for about a minute and a half. So uh, let, uh, let me interrupt you one, one minute with that. Because right after I got fired, Dixie called me and talked to me for like 10 or 15 minutes, telling me how wonderful I was and what an asset I was. And I figured, okay, well, that's what everybody does. You know, that's your, uh, make sure the guy doesn't hang right? <laughs> And then like a week or two later, she called me back and did it again. So I, and, and Dixie had never been anything, but is she a little scared of me? But had never been anything but polite, charming, and all the same thing everybody says about her. But, you know, if you'd asked me in private, I would have said she's a wonderful, nice lady. She just doesn't understand wrestling. So I had no idea. I was like, you know, surely Dixie's not mad at me. But then I also heard from Terry Taylor, because um, I called back even after that. Or, no, no, before Russo told me that. I had uh, called and you know, for a job as an agent or something backstage. Right. And he told me Dixie was mad because uh, when they, when she fired me or something, uh, which actually like three times my contract would run out and they would have to pay me a big balloon payment. Right. And she was pissed off about it. I remember his quote to me was, um, are you going to get me heat with Dixie or something like that? What are you talking about? And he explained the thing about how they had to pay me all that money so that I get involved. I was like, how in the world, how is that my fault? You know? But again, you know, that's years ago, so 10 years ago, so that would have. But oh. yeah, it just, so I, I would have first thought it wasn't Dixie, but then when I heard that, it kind of put a light bulb on in my head about something. And yeah. All you could do is shake your head, and that's why we do this podcast because of uh, uh, yep. stories like this. Hey, I was going to, I was, you had mentioned it, you'd started to mention it, I was going to ask you, you had a cameo. At Slammiversary, in what you know, it, I was there. It, it wasn't. It wasn't by any means a five star match or anything close to it, or four star. It, it was. It. I don't even know that it was a, a a match more than a presentation. But I thought it was one of the most fun things I'd ever seen in my life. And you got to make a cameo at Slammiversary. Uh, Shark Boy made a cameo, playing off his uh, Twitter mm-hmm. feud with with uh, Josh and. And JB, you know, Abyss came back because of you, and then JB did the dive into the thumbtacks. And uh, so, tell me, tell me, was was that like a nice uh, exclamation point at the end of the sentence, kind of wrapping it all up? Because it was fun. I had yeah, yeah, and uh, and and I actually came back like in March for a little bit too, for a couple of shows. But yeah, when I went there, and I was thinking, I mean, look, I looked different. I had shaved my head by then. And I was thinking, okay, I'm going to do this. And I really want it to be a bow on the end of my career because nobody hires managers. Sure. So I was really trepidatious uh, before the thing aired because this was like one of those, what do you call it? The broken hearty match or the, yeah, uh, what, whatever. There's a name for that style of Lucha underground kind of, but that's what that match was with Steiner and Josh Matthews and uh, Borash and Abyss. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm watching. We had pre-taped the thing where I walked up to Abyss to hand him the mask. And they did a good job filming it. Like, you could see the red boots. The guy said, let's start with the boots and stand up slowly. But I was like, these people aren't going to know who I am. And uh, so people were actually, they did the deal where they went, you know, off uh, out of the studio so they could air the pre-taped, you know, shenanigans of the pool and all that. And when the spot came up, I'm standing there waiting on people to say, who the hell is this guy? And when it came up and they saw the red boots and it started panning up, the fucking place went insane. Popped. Huge. I, I mean, Huge. It was, I mean, it was like brought me to tears. I was like, holy awesome. shit, they remember me. And, and it, 
according to some people's biggest pop of the night. It um, was it was up there. It was up there. That and Shark Boy was the two probably, and and JB doing the dive, the uh, the off the top rope into the thumbtacks were probably the three yeah. biggest pop of the night. But it was, you know, it was such a silly match. But the funny thing is, when you read, because I was thinking, okay, they're gonna, everybody's gonna bury this thing. Even the most most of the most harsh critics said this was a clusterfuck. But my God, it was entertaining, oh. and you had these great cameos. You know, Shark Boy doing his silly shit in the pool and the Jaws music, and then the devil shows up. So I would have considered that, uh, you know, when I got done with it, I figured that's it. That's how I close. The, I get closure on this thing. Sure. And uh, they called me in to do a little thing with Grado several months later. And then I did a thing. Uh, we filmed it at the beginning of the year, but it aired in March where uh, basically it was a passing of the torch to the monster. And I went out there and, you know, I said, okay, I guess what I'm doing is, I, you know, I can't bury myself. I got to put myself over, but obviously you're uh, building, uh, all, I mean, uh, Congo Kong and Jimmy Jacobs as the new people. So, you know, I went out there and did that. And uh, because it took so many months before it aired, I was wondering, man, this stink. Did it, did it not work? Because you're in that impact audience, you know, where the crowd's burned out after so many hours right. of TV taping. But uh, the response I got back from that, the, the hits they got on YouTube, beat the shit out of anything they were pushing at the time, like, like double and triple. So it was really gratifying. I don't know if I'll be back. Um, but still, and, and it was kind of, I don't know how much wrestling the business is going to do, but, it, you know, he and I had gotten sideways for a few years, and it was really nice to reunite. And if I don't do anything else with wrestling, period, or or with him or whatever, there, there was a sense of closure on that chapter of my life that I didn't get from years ago where I was just inexplicably dropped. So uh, it was a real lot of fun to be there. And, of course, the the atmosphere is completely different back there now that you have Don Callis and uh, back the board backstage and everybody seems to be happy and not walking on edge. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, so I'll never forget. I was at a resort. I think it was a timeshare, one of those timeshare gimmicks in Orlando with my family. This had to be uh, a dozen years ago. And, uh, and, and it was time, you know, they do all these different activities and it was time for karaoke. And, uh, I was out by the pool and, uh, the, they started the karaoke and I hear a guy singing, you know, to start it off and had a good voice. And I look up. And they're and dressed exactly like your wrestling gimmick with the eyebrows curled up and the, the, the same flashy <laughs> outfits was Jim Mitchell singing karaoke. And I, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I went over and gave you a big oh, hug. I do. And, uh, and it was, it, it was a moment out of a movie because you looked at me. I looked <laughs> at you cause you had some gimmick you were running there at the resort as well. Some sort of vendor thing you were doing or, uh, I, I forget what you were doing. Airbrush oh, airbrush tattoos. tattoos yeah. Like yeah. And I was like, you looked at me, I looked at you like, what in the hell? What are you doing here? Yeah. You know? And basically you said, yeah, this is great hustle. And I was like, yeah, I'm making two grand a week doing this. This is great hustle, you know? So, and, uh, and you're yeah, still doing it, correct? It. Yeah. Yeah. That's look, I'm what I'd always feared anytime I lost a wrestling job was how do I ever go back? punching a clock because right. you, you can't you know right Th then you get into the whole mickey rourke kind of thing in the movie you know sure but uh thankfully i was uh able right after ecw folded in fact i owe canyon this he uh he wanted me to do it and i argued with him for a while and he bought me about ten thousand dollars worth of equipment he said i want you to do this i go out and get drunk with you and do it for fun you'd be great cut promos and I just went out and started cutting wrestling promos and pitching the bar like I'm pitching tickets to the Omni, you know, in the 70s, yeah. like Dusty Rhodes or something. And, uh, and, and it, it worked out really well. And uh, so, yeah, that's what I do. I still uh, occasionally I, uh, I will do uh, indie wrestling shots here and there when they're available. Again, nobody really wants to pay for a manager when you find the ones who do a big gig. Yeah. I, I worked uh, earlier in the year for a company uh, uh, called Atomic Wrestling based out of Coco that has a great roster of talent and it really was running independent shows. And I did it like once a month, which was enough to keep the, the bug. It's like 
methadone to Westland. <laughs> so, um, so, so you don't get sick and go through withdrawals. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm doing, uh, the, uh, the, uh, convention circuit or whatever you call it. The, uh, the uh, autograph signing, sure. WrestleFest kind of thing. Uh, speaking of which, uh, before you get me out of here, I need to do a couple of plugs. Okay. Sure. All right. On uh, Saturday, October the 13th, at the Ramada Inn in Monroe, New Jersey, I will be working with four KNS Promotions Legends of the Ring. KNS Promotions WrestleFest Legends of the Ring. Saturday, October 13th, Ramada in Monroe, New Jersey, and we will be debuting a new set of limited edition uh, trading cards, sports cards called Superstars of the Squared Circle. Um, I am one of the people. I'm honored to be in the uh, trading card set along with, uh, I believe it's Gary Hart, uh, Tony Atlas, Chris Adams, and a couple more that escape my mind at the moment. But again, that is Saturday, October 13th, Legends of the Ring WrestleFest in Monroe, New Jersey. Uh, you can go to KS WrestleFest, one word, dot Weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com for more information or to pre-order tickets. And then on uh, Saturday, November 24th, I will be at WrestleCade. You know WrestleCade, right? I was there and, a couple uh, of years ago. Winston, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Winston-Salem, North Carolina, a huge, huge, huge show every year, uh, reuniting with Mikey Whipwreck where I'll be uh, signing autographs, doing meet and greet, that sort of thing. <laughs> and um, again, that's Saturday, November 24th, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, WrestleCade. And anybody who would like to get a hold of me for any other reason or uh, purchase 8x10 glossy photos, anything of that nature, um, and I hope this works, um, I'm on Facebook, and according to what I read, the actual address, if you look it up, is Jane.Mitchell. 731 at facebook.com. So, that's uh or, or they could just go to Facebook and put James Mitchell in the uh in the search button and when they see your iconic uh face they'll uh, on there they'll know that it's you. But uh, Well, yeah, you've got to find the bald one though because yeah. there are fake ones. There are several fake ones. Oh my god, <laughs> I didn't know. Tell me, yeah, but they've got old pictures of me when I had hair. If you see me and I look like Ming the Merciless, that's the right one. <laughs> it, it, hey, that's actually like a compliment. You know, you've 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 gotten uh, you've gotten somewhere in life when people spend the time to set up fake face, uh, Facebook accounts of you. Yeah, the the, the world has changed. Isn't <laughs> it's a well, weird place to live. We could have a whole nother hour conversation on that that has nothing to do with professional wrestling. And hey, it might be fun down the road, actually. But um, but yeah, so uh. So glad you got the plugs in. So hey, thank you so much. I know that uh, that you, uh, you you did your best to make sure that the storm didn't hamper uh, uh, the the quality of the sound. And um, it was great uh, to get your story, to hear some of your stories. And uh, uh, how, uh, just one last question. I'm always curious, but to this day, how many of a percentage of people when you go do karaoke remember you as a, a, a being in the wrestling business? Uh, I get, well, I, I don't get as many as when I was on TV, sure. TV every week, but, um, I, I still probably get, I don't know, 15 or 20 a week. Um, uh, it takes them a minute before they recognize it and then they flip out, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, and, and you know, it's a gig where I'm still cutting promos, which is why I don't, which is why you, you just know? cut that great promo about K and S Russell Fest and, and Russell K, <laughs> uh, yeah, you're you're the old. You come from the old Jimmy Hart. Uh, uh, always wear your gimmick. Uh, always always dress up like your gimmick. Uh, uh, thought process. And I know Jimmy still wears the the heart jacket, and you still wear uh, the exact same thing. And other than the the bald head, look exactly the same. Hey, uh, uh, great talking to you. Uh, hopefully uh, we could catch up down the road. Love to have a cocktail and uh, and thank you for your time. And uh, don't forget KNS WrestleFest and WrestleCade both. Both of those I've been to, I've been at, and both of those are extremely well put together. If you're looking for a fun and well organized wrestling convention in your area, thanks, Jim. All right, well, thank you for having me on, Dave. You've always been one of my favorite people, going way back to the WCW days. <laughs> uh, you're you're a sterling individual, a lot of fun, and uh, thank you so much for having me on. And guys, uh, may all your stains be large ones. <laughs> 
<laughs> and with that, Jim Mitchell, ladies and gentlemen. My thanks to Jim for a fun hour or so of chatting about his career and his life. And uh, I, I actually really think that um, we need to find somebody to write an accurate uh, biography of Chris Canyon, as Jim mentioned. And he'd be the one to go to to get the information, him, DDP, and so many others. Uh, so if anybody has uh, any interest in doing that, uh you don't even have to give me credit. Just uh, do right by my friend Chris Canyon. God bless him. Uh, we're going to be here next week, as always, with another exciting guest for you talking professional wrestling. So, as always, be sure to follow me at David Penzer on Twitter or at Penzer Ringside. Looking forward to seeing you next time. Until then, my name is David Penzer. I'm still sitting ringside. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also, make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a Landry football with Chris Landry. Quick fix on Radio Influence. What makes college football unique is that the games... The singular games are more meaningful and more important and more integral to the success or failure of the season than one game in, in the NFL. Now, you look at it, you end up missing the playoffs by a game or two in the NFL. Every game's important. They are. Every game. Week one is just as important as week 16. But because there's so many teams that makes the, make the playoffs in the NFL, um, there's time for you to drop three or four games and correct yourself, and I think from Thanksgiving on, the NFL games take on a different meaning, take on a different heighten of importance, and if you go, you know, 12 and 4, you go 11 and 5, you've had one hell of a year in the NFL. College football, what makes college football so unique is the fact that every game is like a playoff. The regular season is beyond compelling. It's so integral. You don't think Auburn, Washington, Notre Dame, Michigan are not important, but just what's bigger than important. I mean, critical. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that the loser is definitely out. Long season. We don't know what's going to happen. But I can tell you this. The loser's off to a really tough start in the winter. Again, it's, it's like, like a playoff win. Chris Landry brings you Landry Football every week on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com.